0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm joined this week by William Davis, who is an academic at Goldsmiths University in London, whose new book is called Nervous States, how feeling took over the world and William this is a book that does more than you know quite a lot of these new books about post-truth you delve back and you kind of historicize the moment we're in can you talk a bit about what the framework for sure
1: this I think one of the things that struck me and of course the book is heavily contextualized by the eruptions of 2016 that have been debated endlessly in terms of their causes and I'm obviously talking about the Brexit referendum result and the election of Donald Trump and so on but one of the things that struck me about those events was that there was a much longer history that was often being ignored, which was, I think, really two different trends at once. One is the loss of credibility of a particular idea of facts as matters around which we can all agree in the political realm and in the governmental realm and and so on which has been fundamental to how journalism works to how governing works to how regulation works is the idea that it's possible to establish certain matters of truth and put them on paper and put them in the public record and that people won't dispute them that clearly has been something that has become politicized has been challenged questions of statistics questions of economics are now no longer seen as apolitical in the same way as that they were 10 or 20 years ago and And institutions such as the BBC that try to remain neutral on certain issues are seen as as political, are seen as biased by various opponents who now have routes such as YouTube and others to get their messages out against the so-called liberal elites. So there's been a kind of decline of a particular ideal of government and of facts that in the book i trace back to the late 17th century when you got the first government administrators the first statisticians the first technocrats if you like along with the many of the first newspapers but there's also been the rise of a challenge to that ideal which is a, an alternative idea of what political authority consists of which is the authority of those who say i'm not going to bore you with the facts i'm not going to patronize you with going into Questions of how the world looks to me, and so on. If you follow me, I will look after you. If you show loyalty to me, I know how you feel. You and I have some kind of less objective form of identification with each other. I'm not going to represent you in the way that a, a politician offers some form of kind of representation of of their constituents, but I'm going to lead you in the direction that you want to go in, and and that clearly is is at the heart of populism. But that also has a long history, and I trace it back to the late 18th century, and 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 the 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 Napoleonic Wars that give rise to the birth of of nationalism and a different idea of what the state is fundamentally.
0: You sort of slice and dice the movements that you describe in this book along sort of two axes. I mean, you say Mm. very early on in the book that the sort of idea of modernity we've got now is based on two premises, a sort of distinction between mind and body, which is this Cartesian Mm. separation, which you say is sort of breaking down, and between war and peace. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about how that... Sure. I mean, are are those innovations?
1: Again, I think one thing which has been shocking to many of those, and I include myself in this, to many who are experts, people who are part of the, I suppose, the establishment, broadly understood, is there's this sense that you know there's been an outburst of kind of irrational, sentimental, emotional, political uprisings in the form of populism and so on. But I think that one thing that people assume is that the way in which we think about the world is governed by rationality and the way that we feel about the world is something that is far more impulsive, far more bodily and so on. Now this is in some ways a, a hangover from the ideas of, of the French philosopher René Descartes in the mid-17th century who was famously kind of split all matter into matters that, of the mind and matters of the body in the, in the 1630s the philosopher who was a contemporary of, of Descartes, who I argue was also kind of a fundamental, created a fundamental starting point for liberal thinking in its most basic building blocks, I'm not talking about liberal thinking in form of the Liberal Democrats or of, sort of human rights or something like that, I'm talking about the very fundamental building blocks of, of how we think about modern politics. Uh, that second philosopher was Thomas Hobbes, and in his, his 1651 work Leviathan, which is one of the kind of fundamental works of, of modern political philosophy, argued that what the state does is to establish a domain of, of peace and establish a kind of clear separation between between war and peace. And I think that what we can see in the reactions against liberalism in, in various forms is not only a kind of dissolving of that Cartesian ideal of, of mind and body as separate things, and that actually many of the, I think many people have noticed, and I talk a bit about this in the book, that one of the striking things about the rise of, of national and of populism in, in certain cases in Europe and North America is how much it correlates to actually to, to health outcomes and to matters of the body as much as of kind of opinions of the mind that, you know, that it correlates to the supporters of Marine Le Pen in, in France uh, have lower life expectancy than average. Supporters, and I appreciate many of the listeners to this will be supporters of Brexit and so on, but I think it is a matter of statistical record that, you know, the, the support for Brexit was uh, sort of split along age. Lines as well, and I think that one of the things that I I, I'm trying to think through in the book is lower life expectancy. This, for, is this is adjusted, Pen. adjusted for average age? No, 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 this is this is a lot of, Le Pen's support is actually, actually younger than, than average, right. so a lot of support for Le Pen, in contrast to other nationalist movements or populist movements, is, so it's not is on that the young, they're old in their life No, life no, country. no, no they, so they have, so have a lower, lower voting me So they have lower, lower health I think that, I mean, I'm not making strong health correlations here, but the idea that politics is something that is a purely kind of mental affair, things that we sort of reason about, that we, we debate in a purely sort of reasoned, verbal, mental Fashion, I think, is, is breaking down in various ways. And I think that our assumptions that were established by, as I say, by Rene Descartes about how the modern individual works are being challenged by some of these sorts of forces. I think that the, when we think about the distinction between war and peace, which was the, the second kind of binary that you mentioned, it's at least telling or at least interesting, I think, that so often now, a lot of populist movements use the the rhetoric at least if if not the the tactics of war when talking about their objectives that we are in a culture war, or Steve Bannon talks about you know that there is a, a war going on against the globalists that nationalists are fighting, and there is a rhetoric which is true on the left as much as on the right of a rather of representing the people which is a kind of core ideal of the Hobbesian modern liberal state it's rather of mobilizing the people which is much more something that we associate with times of modern war from the from the 19th century onwards. And one of the points is, that, like, is, yeah, is isn't yeah. it,
0: that, that war you know again talking about this idea of feeling versus mm. reasoning yeah. that the technocratic state once Reason mm. to be central, war always wants you to mobilize. That's feelings.
1: right. So, so one of the things that I was trying to explore in the book is that rather than saying, "Oh, you know, why, why, why have people suddenly become so emotional? Why have they become so sort of impulsive?" And there's a sort of sudden outbreak of sentiment that, that some people associate with these moments of populism and so on. But was to say, well, actually, if you look back again, take this big step back that I do in the book, the interest in how the people are feeling has a long history of there's a there's a long history of, of political leaders and of elites caring deeply about how the people are feeling and trying to get them to feel in a certain way, trying to divert their passions in one way or the other. It's not simply about sort of reducing passion or eliminating passion, as as the ideal of sort of reasonable liberal politics might might seek, but actually of trying to divert people's feelings in, in a way that is conducive to the common good. But that is true particularly in times of war or in preparation for war. And actually some of the first efforts to measure popular sentiment and morale in, in Britain arose during World War II when I mean you already had the emergence of polling techniques from, from Gallup and others from the 1930s but the, the idea that we need to kind of test public sentiment and sort of try and alter public feeling and it sounds rather sort of shady when you, when you put it like that but you know which of course has become something that everyone's paranoid about right now with Facebook you know are they are they changing the way we feel about things can they sort of divert the way we vote and so on but but this was something that, during times of war, was was treated as, as uh, certainly in the 20th century as, as as an entirely kind of sensible thing for for governments to try and do. Well, that's attempt um, to kind yeah. of
0: quantify and datafy yeah. feeling. I mean, is that where it starts to get you know stickier? Because you say you know this old Cartesian stick with you know with rational mind and observing mm. and quantifying and creating data sure. that's sort of publicly verifiable. Mm. It's now being applied to yeah. you know the apparently irrational realm of feeling.
1: Yes, there's been a, a kind of long history of effort to try and understand, well, in some ways the birth of modern psychology in the in the 1870s begins this process of, of bringing the inner life of individuals that for someone like Descartes was kind of metaphysical and, and, and couldn't be objectively known. The, the birth of, of modern psychology and, and psychoanalysis and, and modern psychiatry in the 1870s and 80s begins this process of trying to kind of bring to light the inner recesses of the minds of others or the, the minds of the people, which which obviously offers opportunities quite how effective those opportunities are but to others who might want to try and change how we feel and, and of course you don't have to be an out and out cynic to recognize that's what advertising is partly trying to do is to not just simply to kind of give us information about coca-cola but to make us like coca-cola so that's what i mean many of the you know the, the term propaganda that edward bernays who was the, the founder of, of public relations in the in the 1920s and he wrote a famous book propaganda but really all he was suggesting when he wrote that book was that politicians should use some of the same techniques that businesses were beginning to use in the realm of advertising. Now, of course, Facebook can do that far more acutely and generates far more concern as a result. But I think by bringing this longer history back in, maybe we can be a little bit calmer about that.
0: But a sort of old retrograde head like me would say, isn't this just a restating or a reframing of the Aristotelian idea that there's three different ways you persuade people's ethos, you know, the identification issue, the pathos is feeling and logos is the sort of, you know, as it were, rational side of things. And that, you know, through history, you know, you look at Shakespeare, look at Julius Caesar, look at, you know, mm. we've recognised the power of the crowd and the way mm. the crowds behaved and that we're simply seeing a kind of rebalancing of the triad towards pathos and ethos, if you like.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, I, I don't use Aristotle in the book and that's an interesting perspective on it. I suppose that ultimately the book tries to walk a line of saying, on the one hand, let's not dismiss all of these different ways of approaching politics because ultimately technocrats and the heyday of the, the liberal elites that you could sort of see as that seems sort of all conquering as, as recently as only sort of 2007 or so, they need to understand what's going on. But on the other hand, without wanting to say that kind of emotions need to be kind of kicked out of politics once more. Ultimately, I don't think there is an alternative to governing in ways that places great emphasis on expertise and and on a certain idea of reason. So I suppose I'm not using that Aristotelian framework. I'm, what I'm trying to say is to, trying to understand that a lot of the way in which emotion has come into politics has been in rather a confrontational, combative way. That's not to say that there aren't other types of social movement, which are much more about trying to express sympathy. I talk about I mean there have been various movements and crowds over recent years that have not been organised around conflict or combat or violence but have actually been in some ways standing for non-violence and part of where the book ends up is to to sort of celebrate that and to to try and see what we could take from that. It may be that Aristotle is the the, 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 the way forward which I hadn't considered but I think that there is a danger right now and this may be I'm just expressing my own you know liberal (laughs) metropolitan perspective on this but there is a danger right now clearly I think think that that we throw the baby out with the bathwater and we end up with a politics in which sentiment is kind of runs roughshod over the top of of evidence and, and of reason and so we we're, we're going to need to find some kind of balance between these well, things accommodating yes yes
0: like. one of the sort of you know early parts book, you talk about crowd behavior mm. and a point you make about it is that it behaves you know a physical crowd it's, mm. it's a very embodied experience mm. and emotion Mm. runs through crowds, mm. you know, to do with physical proximity. It's not a you know and then we've moved on to a different sort of crowd though now, mm. in the sense that the sort of mass
1: crowds of social media. Yeah. But they are disembodied. Does that make them qualitatively different? Well are they disembodied? I mean, this is the interesting question. I mean, I, you know, I, what you're referring to, I have a brief discussion of the ideas of Gustave Le Bon, who was one of the founders of crowd psychology in France in the 1880s, who was very fearful of crowds. He thought that they were extremely dangerous and wanted to kind of find ways of of controlling them and avoiding granting them too much power and of course social media has in some ways res- re- there's been a kind of resurgence of of the crowd and and this has been in kind of there have been various things like the the, the arab spring was 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 heavily associated with the use of twitter and in in, in in mobilizing people and, and so on but actually the interesting thing about social media is that you say it's disembodied and of course it it, it, it i mean we still have an idea of of cyberspace or a virtual community and all the sorts of those sorts of notions that were present in the early days of mainstream internet use in the kind of late 90s and so on but actually so much of the way in which digital technology is is pervading society today actually is it's about connecting our bodies a lot of the time this is sometimes called the internet of things but you think about wearable technology you think about this new fascination with the face that has taken over the world of marketing of trying to discern algorithmically how people are feeling by virtue of their of their, their facial expressions emojis are, I mean they're disembodied, but there is still a sort of sense of of trying to kind of by every means possible to bring the affective visceral physical aspects of social relations kind of of digitizing them not to kind of split the world into a sort of virtual community and into a physical one which which in some ways sort of is a kind of hangover of the of Descartes kind of idea of mind and body as separate things but there is as digital technology has become all pervasive in some ways our physical worlds are becoming joined up in in various ways and and in in the chapter in particular that I write about how the internet is is changing our politics right now. I talk about Zuckerberg's, Mark Zuckerberg's comments in a press conference three years ago, where he talks about telepathy as being the kind of ultimate goal of, of Facebook, that I could think something and you would instantly be able to feel it. And that you would sort of get a kind of whatever it might be, you know, they've, they've got these kind of wearable technologies that allow you to have I mean, this is not science fiction. I mean, it sounds some, some of the listeners will think, oh, my gosh, this is just kind of, you know, 100 years away. It's not, this is something that is already scientifically possible. And Zuckerberg, has declared
0: line you will weep because another wear Right exactly. You know?
1: yes, exactly and Zuckerberg and, and some of the people working for him have already got technologies where one of these Facebook technicians says I'll be able to think something and you'll instantly feel it using a, a wearable sleeve that, as if, so a thought becomes a physical phenomenon which is a philosophically very strange idea for us partly because of our Cartesian hangover of thinking that thinking is a completely disembodied thing but in the age of neuroscience and in the age of, of ubiquitous digital technology." and wearable technology, I think we increasingly have to think of thinking as something that, Our bodies do in some way that can be monitored, can be seen, can be detected. All of that obviously is cause for paranoia in some ways, but at the same time, it also I think forces us to think through what kinds of political beings we are, and forces us to question whether we can really say, "Well, I'm, you know, I'm I'm not influenced by my feelings or my body. I'm I'm just a purely rational agent, and I'm not like all of those people in the crowd."
0: How much do you think it's necessary that even if we can see that it's been to an extent exploded, this mind-body Mm. distinction that we need to keep it in currency as a useful analytical distinction because Mm. for instance there is a move in a lot of progressive politics now to to sort of break down the barrier which used to be absolute between the idea of violence as a physical violence and the idea that say dead naming a trans person or using racially offensive language Mm. is itself a form of violence.
1: Well, this is a fascinating topic, and there's no easy way through it, in my view. And obviously, the free speech debates that go on. And I mean, I work in a university that has been embroiled in in several of them. And of course, um, your, your university was the one which came up with that amazing gulags thread, wasn't it? No, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm afraid it was, but I won't comment any further on that. So the, there is this idea that, in a sense, of what you're suggesting is: well, we have to draw a very strict line around the realm of what we call violence, and and then have a, an absolute distinction between that and the realm of free speech discussion. In a you know, the old saying uh, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And that is a position that various people are taking right now. And there are these free speech warriors of, of the alt-right, or there are the more reasoned figures such as Stephen Pinker and others who, who are sort of, you know, insistent on, on that we need to kind of uphold this distinction. I think that at the very least, we have to recognise that the distinction has become much murkier. It is in the age of of the brain, you can carry on, as you say, kind of acting as if thinking and, and language are are purely non-physical phenomena. But that is a political position in its own right. It becomes something you adopt. And I do discuss for for a bit in the book what I think is, in some ways, the one of the most distinctive syndromes of our age. It may not be very widespread, but I think that it tells us a lot about the kind of malaise that our politics is and our culture is, is grappling with at the moment, which is post-traumatic stress disorder and post stress disorder is where we get a lot of these phrases like trigger warnings that are so controversial on campuses that you know certain forms of content shouldn't be read or screened without warning people that they're coming because they can cause harm and I think that one of the interesting things about post- I mean, post-traumatic stress disorder is a, is a diagnostic category it's not sort of invented by snowflakes I mean there may be people who um, who, who kind of claim to have it who don't have it but nevertheless we, it is something that that doctors and scientists believe is real and I think that it, it does at least kind of open up the possibility that that violence is something that can operate in in non-physical ways, that we can be emotionally and neurologically harmed by our experiences, by protracted stress, by feelings of being in constant danger, of feeling that we must be constantly alert in case someone harms us, that constant abuse or bullying or neglect can actually change us physically. This is no longer just something, this isn't a sort of You know, just my opinion or a sort of, you know, postmodern conceit. This is actually something that I think that science can endorse. And I think that this means that, as you say, we can choose to carry on as if the realm of the mind and the realm of the body are in completely separate categories and that never the twain shall meet. But that is no longer, I think, the cultural, historical, political moment that we're in. Does that have kind of
0: implications for a point you make again in the book that? The Hobbesian sort of paradigm says that the, the only reason that we are safe is because we give the state a monopoly on violence. But of course, in the Hobbesian model, that's physical violence. Sure. If you yeah. give the state a monopoly on certain forms of verbal violence, what are the implications well, of that? Well, very,
1: that's very difficult. And I think, you know, you, in some ways, the problem of our age is that the state is, in its effort to try and maintain this monopoly on violence that Hobbes said the state must have, particularly over the last 20 or 30 years, with the rise of, of non-state military agents such as ISIS, but equally the activities of the yeah, we've had state those may, may for a or may time not time be had, yeah. well, We've had those for a long time, but I think that the the opportunities to do harm in a very decentralised, rather unorganised, very low-budget way appear to have risen over the last 20 years or so. But equally, what you say about problems that you might call hate speech or crimes of inciting violence and this sort of thing it does drag the state into some really very difficult directions I mean I heard only the other day rather I mean it was rather scoffed at but the Labour MP Lucy Powell the other day was suggesting that the government needed to do more to stop people using private Facebook groups or uh, uh, to to, to sort of you know to, to mobilize in a kind of angry and potentially dangerous way and it's I think true that I mean our public sphere has been utterly transformed by the fact that newspapers no longer kind of hold a, a monopoly on, on public debate of broadcasters and people can now in WhatsApp groups and various things can plot plan scheme develop sort of new forms of antipathy now of course the law does have certain things to say about what counts as 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 hate speech what counts as uh, as an illegal threat of violence one of the problems online which I talk a bit about as well is is the sort of role of irony and, and humor where one minute are kind of you can be talking metaphorically about a certain type of violence or war or you know this is a culture war and so on but the next minute is this actually a, a type of threat i mean you see these preposterous things in politics at the moment i think are sort of funny but also tell us something about how our, our sense of our of the public discourse has gone wrong there was a rather absurd discussion in, on, amongst labor supporters a couple of weeks ago where someone said the that, girl, and the dogs. that's right the yes. dogs that's what I was Searching for it. Call off the dogs. And then various people, as Corbyn supporters, said, How dare he call us dogs? as if they didn't understand the expression call off the dogs. And then there was a whole debate about, you know, well, are metaphors dangerous and so on. Now you can sort of scoff at all of that and say, Well, you know, the Corbynites were just sort of making a fuss about nothing. But nevertheless, this seems to be a perpetual problem in our public discourse of not knowing at what point is language just language and at what point is language something other than language. In the framework that I lay out in the book, that's partly because because we have sort of undergone this shift from an age of, I suppose what you could call an age of representation where language and, and, and experts and facts and so on are holding up a kind of mirror to the world to an age of mobilisation where they are much more about trying to engender forms of uh, activity, action, mobilisation, emotion, support, potentially leading to a threat of some kind. And I'm not sure that we're very well equipped to be able to make some of those what are quite nuanced philosophical distinctions.
0: One of the points you mentioned about closed WhatsApp groups or the way in which sort of, as it were, the mainstream media no longer hold a sort of central I mean, it seems to me to go back to what you talk about in the book, saying that, you know, when the Royal Society started Mm. the proceedings, there was an idea, which actually is reincarnated in the blockchain, Mm. that the way in which, as it were, rational Mm. quantification of the world and a reasonable description of the world is trustworthy is the extent to which it's transparent and widely shared and widely available. Mm. And I just wonder whether now our media and our public conversations are so disaggregated Mm. and... As we know, there's a fuel by the market because, you know, as Joseph Stiglitz and others have noted, asymmetric information is where you make your money. Yeah. I mean, do you think there is a way of getting back to a situation in which there is enough of a public discursive space yeah. for people to, if you like, share and trust sure. information. I mean, another problem you raise is speed, of course. As yeah, well.
1: I mean, speed is, is something else. And, and, and we've talked about the state's monopoly on the means of violence as being the, its kind of founding moment in the mid-17th century of the, of the modern state as it came out of the religious wars of the early 17th century. But there was also these other monopolies that allowed the liberal public sphere to develop there was the printing press that was very centralized you know compared to the age of twitter youtube and so on and there were these other what were effectively monopolies on the production of knowledge now that sounds like, you know, it was like, well, knowledge is surely just knowledge and you don't there's no politics involved, surely, people will say. But actually, of course there's lots of politics involved because what happened with the birth of these scientific societies in the in the sixteen sixties and sixteen seventies and so on, was that certain people and they were tended to be mixtures of gentlemen and scholars and, and merchants, would say, right, we are going to establish the rules through which Our observations are recorded, shared, and and established as facts. And the Royal Society was one of those in in 1660. Also, you had the foundation of particular techniques of accounting that actually started much sooner than that. But, you know, mercantile culture depended on people agreeing that you were going to record your assets and and liabilities in particular ways that everybody would, would recognize. But these were very small communities. That made it, you know, it was partly how it was possible to do. They were small communities. They were relatively privileged people, they were literate and they were relatively close-knit networks and some of them operated around coffee shops in the City of London and so on. Now, the mass democracy has been challenging that for a long time. Uh, the internet obviously challenges it even further because all of these things challenge the monopoly and newspapers and broadcasters are still, I think, struggling to work out where they fit in. The scientific establishment is still struggling to find out where it fits in in, in an age of much more chaotic, decentralized production of what we may not call truth, but it's nevertheless a, a type of knowledge in a sense. I mean, conspiracy theories claim to know something about the world and lots of people believe them. And it's not always entirely easy to say what is the difference between those and the things that scientists are doing. And, and actually, Hobbes, as I talk a bit about in the book, Hobbes was rather suspicious of these scientific clubs because he said, well, you know, if we're going to delegate to you guys the right to tell us what nature consists of, what grants you this power? You're not legislated for, no one elected you, you're, you're going to end up with a sort of, a bit like the church which was exactly who he was sort of trying to disempower in many ways you're going to have a new type of church and they're going to be called scientists and that's exactly what many conspiracy theorists would claim about you know vaccines or climate change or something like that is that it's all a kind of club that is self-reinforcing now can we get back to that well i think this is partly a question about remaking the, the case for forms of public monopoly the bbc obviously has to try and do that and i think the bbc is trying to toe a line through the whole Brexit fight, that God knows how much longer it's going to carry on for, of trying desperately to sort of stay out of the fight and as much as it can, to the point where it is obviously attacked by the likes of Alistair Campbell and Andrew Donas for being pro-Brexit, because it's not mobilising the types of facts that they believe it should mobilise. But nevertheless, clearly the BBC has, I would assume, has taken a decision that it is going to behave, if it's going to retain some kind of patrician role as being for everyone, it has to somehow offer a, a sort of public service rather like the NHS or something that that is for the nation rather than in the business that say the New York Times has adopted in relation to Trump which is to attack him day in day out using facts and the BBC is not doing this in relation to Brexit because it clearly is seeking a position as I say something more like the NHS or the royal family or something you know that it's it's treating its role more in its relation to the United Kingdom which has voted for Brexit, than it is as a source of, of sort of critical, incisive fact-checking in the way that New York Times and Washington Post have done to Trump. Now, whether that works, we will see. But one of the other things which is, I think, you know, possibly interesting is whether, uh, and, and as far as scientists are concerned, there is an endless debate about what is the best way to, to fight conspiracy theory. Do you engage? Do you not engage? Like, you know, anti-evolutionary thinking in schools and so on. What do you do? There's no clear answer on that.
0: A point you make very eloquent about this is that there is the places where the problem, if you like, is most acute and the reaction against technocracy is most acute are the situations in which it's got too big mm. and too complex. Yeah. And an example is the EU yeah. and the other example you use is the federal United States. Mm. And that, you know, if you like, the sorts of ways of measuring these things we have, you know, GDP per capita income, whatever it is you know, they're just two blunt instruments mm. to measure what's going on on a smaller scale. Sure. I mean, is that an argument in the long run, in a way for things like Brexit, for creating smaller communities of political engagement rather than the supranational technocratic ones? Yeah, arms?
1: sure. I think, so clearly there's a there's a sense amongst those who are supportive of populist parties on both left and right that the elites of government but also of many centralized media institutions and regulators and so on are in no way representing them or the world in an honest or adequate fashion there has been i think and this is i think is quite a recent thing i would say it's really in the last decade or something i think what's what's interesting is is that when people start to believe that the politicians are corrupt and this is something that there is sociological research on they also lose trust and all sorts of other institutions simultaneously they start to not believe what they see in the media in the same way they start to not believe various things that they might be told by auditors or professional associations and so on so it's a sort of there's a kind of a a shattering of but is is that
0: in part of reaction against exactly what you've described as a technocratic ideal that politics and data and information and science and so-called rationality are knitted together.
1: I think there's been a kind of technocratic overreach. I think New Labour was very guilty of this, and I think a lot of people in in the Labour Party now accept this, that it got to the point where facts and statistics and evidence were used as a way of basically sort of clobbering people and telling them that they didn't know what they were talking about. And clearly that was the great mistake of the way that the Remain campaign was fought. I mean, it's just only happened only, only earlier this week, Christine Lagarde from the IMF has popped up again saying, you know, we mustn't have a hard Brexit without, you know, this, this this sense of these extremely distant technocratic figures claiming to know better than everybody else, seems to provoke far more anger than the very wealthy standing up and saying that they, they know what to do. And that, I think, is an interesting thing, is that you know, many people might assume that resentment and anger gets gets mobilised against economic inequality, but actually cultural inequality seems to provoke far more animosity. And I do think that technocrats have brought that upon themselves to a great extent, and I think that that's partly to do with the way in which there was a kind of a revolving door, I mean, clearly in Washington, D.C., between sort of Goldman Sachs and the White House and this sort of thing, but in British politics as well. I mean, there's been a sort of sense that sort of think tanks big four consultants, political parties, Westminster, Whitehall and so on, the boundaries between these things started to become increasingly weak to the point where being an expert, being a wonk being a politician being a you know a a bureaucrat all started to kind of fade into one and i think that that was the perception was oh you're you're a bunch of london elites who think you know everything that clearly was what has driven a lot of politics over the last three or four years but i think that it was also a a valid one in terms of indicators there's also i mean as i point out in the book there have been many of the the indicators that became extremely embedded in the mid-20th century like gdp and unemployment which became the kind of ways in which you know progress was measured to a great extent. Have become, I think, increasingly sort of misleading. I mean, in the United States, 50% of people have had no real income pay increase since the 1970s. I and mean, it's an astonishing fact. But GDP can carry on rising and not reveal that. Equally, output per head in productivity terms is eight times higher in West London than it is in South Wales. And yet GDP can carry on rising. And these sorts of internal inequalities don't get represented by these big national indicators. Now, that could be a case for greater localization of indicators and a greater localisation. Of the ways in which expertise gets the focus of expertise. I mean, it might have been just a sort of a PR exercise, but Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, did go a couple, sort of some months ago, go on a kind of a sort of regions tour of the UK as a sort of, I mean, rather kind of, a sort of slightly maybe a patronising or something, but you know, nevertheless, realize, a sort of an, a recognition that what we call the UK and the British economy are not one thing anymore, and that there's been a sort of, you know, this has been swept under the carpet for far too long, and it was hidden by a lot of labour policies of tax credits and various forms of using public sector employment to push jobs around the country and that sort of thing but fundamentally a lot of economies have not had a shared experience of progress over the last 30 years or so
0: do you think i mean i'm curious to how optimistic you are i mean someone like steven pinker you know has made a forceful case to say we need to double down and we just need more enlightenment values you know i mean it's from a slightly fuzzy about you know whether those values are the real ones of the enlightenment but you know he he says here are what the enlightenment values are we need to double down on them this is the only way to go forward is that just a form of nostalgia is that enough
1: i don't think that that is enough it can't be enough if it proceeds in the way that someone like Pinker does, which is to say, and I actually I actually reviewed his book in The Guardian, so his most recent one Enlightenment Now, and, and it's sort of 400 pages of stats, basically, and it's saying look, if you think that you know what's going on in the world you're wrong, and I, I do, and you don't sort of thing. I mean, it's a sort of, it's very bullish you can't fault its, its confidence, certainly, but I think that there has to be a, a reckoning with well, with feeling. This is why I'm, I'm, the, I've, I've written the book in a way that is that is trying to, to reach out and to sympathise with the fact that most people are not experts but that doesn't delegitimise their view of the world and it certainly doesn't delegitimise their account of how their lives are changing and the forms of experiences and particularly the pains that they're having and the feelings of alienation and I think that these need to be taken seriously and these need in some ways to be brought into public debate and public discourse. I don't think someone like Pinker really wants to listen to people really, I think he wants them to listen to him and I think that learning new ways of listening and in some ways as 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 hard as it may be but to sort of i suppose to learn from the example of 17th century institution making and of peacemaking and of shared world making really, which was far from perfect, and it had it itself was in, it, it implicated in forms of violence and, and colonialism and so on. But I mean, my book doesn't so in some ways kind of starts before the Enlightenment because that moment in the late 17th in the mid 17th century was a was a moment where people were coming out of horrific forms of bloody conflict, and they were conflicts that were fueled by fundamental disagreement about the very nature of reality. And I think in some ways... I'm not saying we're there yet we're, we're a long way from that I mean we are not you know Twitter flame wars So we're going to so have a 30, year,
0: a 30 year war that's well, going <laughs> end with the new
1: Westphalia <laughs> I mean I think that politics and peace are clearly threatened when people cannot agree on the very basic facts of reality and on the very basic rules of public life that I think most people need to agree with or, or, or would agree with me on Pinker would agree with me on that but but I think that at the moment we are in a, clearly in a dangerous situation where people are putting. In opposite directions, and we need to think about about where that lead. People are at the moment more enthused and more um, certainly more emotionally mobilised by a different idea of politics, which is about the mobilisation of us. It is about the taking care of us and the protection of of our people in one way or the other. Now, the I think rather unlikely but possible future which I also touched on at the end of the book, is that could some of that second form of politics, that kind of mobilisation ideal of politics, could that be directed towards something much more collective and inclusive? And the example I give is the movement that is known as climate mobilisation in the United States, which is based on an analysis of the threat of climate change and shows that one of the only things that might actually prevent some quite catastrophic outcomes over the next 100 years would be a, a mobilisation of the civilian economy along the lines of something like the Second World War, where if you had a kind of requisitioning of economic infrastructure and and, and resources and a redirection of them towards outcomes that many climate scientists believe need to be pursued now and not some sort of slowly over the next hundred years, that could become a sort of could, could provide a kind of hope. I don't think that's likely to happen. Yes, good um, luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's I think the, the it's an example of how the language of mobilisation and the language of, of of affective engagement, rather than of emotional engagement, rather than simply the language of kind of facts and and a representation of the public interest, that, that that it can be put to different uses other than just conflict. And equally, there are widespread mobilizations in the streets, whether it be something like the the more in common movement that came out of the murder of Joe Cox, that there are forms of mobilisation that have many of the same traits as the rather more threatening form and divisive forms of, of populism and so on, but which we can find hope in, and that we can't simply discount these if we look to the future in an optimistic way and we have to somehow find ways of marrying these to rather longer-standing ideals of, of reason and, and expertise
0: William Davis thank you very much indeed. thank you you were listening to the spectators books podcast um, very much hope you enjoyed it and if you did please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store we'd love to hear from you